Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 12. Magic is Might. As August wore on, the square of unkempt grass in the middle of Grimold Place shriveled in the sun until it was brittle and brown. The inhabitants of number 12 were never seen by anybody in the surrounding houses, and nor was number 12 itself. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We would like to thank, of course, our amazing patrons who we couldn't do this without. Leah Liffman, Marie Van Loon, Victoria Banks, Katie Kelly, and Kaylor Grise. We just can't thank you enough. We really can't thank you enough. We're not going to try because it gets tedious and boring, but we can't. (laughs) A big thanks also to our local group in Sacramento, California, Another incredible name. They are the NorCal Nifflers, run by Marina Castro. Big love to you, Marina, and everyone in the Sacramento group. And you can find them and all other local groups, many of whom are still meeting right now online. So this is the perfect time to join at harrypottersacredtext.com, where you can also find our tickets for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text summer camp that starts next week. We've got incredible guests, and we're so excited to be with you all for an extended amount of time. It's like hanging out with us, and we get to hang out with you. And so you should really come, because it's going to be fun. Also, it'll be lonely if you don't. Vanessa, we're digging into the theme of truth this week, and it's your turn to tell a story. Yeah, so 
Thanks to this amazing community, we raised almost $60,000 for an organization called Raices, which provides legal services to people detained at the border. And because of that, we got invited by a sister organization of theirs to visit immigration court in New York City, where a lot of cases are tried for people who've come to New York but do not have proper documentation. So the Arianas and I showed up at immigration court one day and we met with these amazing lawyers who were going to just walk us through a morning of what it's like to attend immigration court. And it is just sort of like chaos trying to find your way into court. And that is as a native English speaker. All of the signs are in English, even though this is immigration court. So arguably most of the people there who are in need of service, English is not their first language. There's no formal signage telling you anywhere to go. It's like they found a printer from 1972 that seems to still be working and they print these lists and put them up on a bulletin board. And that's supposed to tell you where to go and which room you're in to like decide the fate of your life. And then there isn't enough room in the courtrooms for people to sit, right? So there's sort of like this antechamber where people are sitting and waiting to be called in. And we watched and it it just very quickly became so tedious and it became obvious that it was bureaucratic hell. Like the judge wasn't looking up from the paperwork. She was being handed papers by a clerk and she was just sort of treating the people as if they were paperwork, barely looking up. And then there wasn't even a formal translator there. There was a social worker there for one case. And the judge was like, oh, you speak Spanish and English. Can you please stay? And the woman was like, I guess I have a free couple of hours and I can stay. And so like she stayed and translated. I have no idea how this would have worked without that translator there. Anyway, so person after person goes up and it's like the exact same routine over and over and over again. And then this woman gets called and she gets called. She she hadn't had a seat in the courtroom so she hadn't seen how all of the ones before her had gone and she gets called up and she gets like asked the same questions you know and again the judge is just like not looking up from the paper and she asks the judge asks the woman have you ever been arrested before and everybody prior to this woman said no I haven't been arrested before and this woman goes yes I've been arrested before and like that sort of like pops the judge's head up and she's like what And the woman is just sort of standing there like, yeah, I've been arrested. And the judge goes, oh, have you been arrested for something other than for entering the country? And the woman was like, oh, no. And what was so interesting to me about that moment is that the defendant now saw herself and saw her truth as a woman who's been arrested. Mm. And that has shifted her identity. And yet, Sitting there, it just became so clear to Ariana, Ariana and I how arbitrary that is, how bureaucratic that is, how it's like a stamp that is meaningless to a large extent to the government. And yet the same truth was completely identity shifting for this woman. First of all, I'm really glad that you and Ariana Martinez and Ariana Nettleman got to be there just to witness this, because I think one of the things that's so true is that these processes are so invisible, like it's not on the front page of the newspaper, right? It's not a commonly understood process. And so to come up close and as someone who's not necessarily directly involved with immigration to, to really understand and share that story, it, it also illustrates the way in which we interpret our experiences so differently, right? Most of the people going through that process were like, no, I've never been arrested. I've never been arrested. And then this woman was like, 
yeah, I've been arrested. Like her experience of this was was being criminalized, was being told that you have done something wrong. And I can just imagine how these moments can interrupt a sense of who we are in the story that we're living. I'm really grateful for you sharing that. Yeah. And, you know, it's entirely to do with one of our listeners, Desiree Hernandez, who happens to work for this sister organization with Raices that invited us. So I'm just very grateful to her and her colleagues who, I mean, like we were in their way, right? Like we were underfoot for the morning and they were so generous. Should we remind people the truth of what happens in the chapter? It's an intense chapter. It's a lot. I don't know what you're talking about. Like barely anything happens. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, here we go. On your mark, get set, go. So first of all, the Fab Five embodied in one little person creature has totally transformed the house in Grimoire Place and it's sparkling and delightful. And Bobby clearly has done most of the work while Anthony just cut avocados. Um, then um, we, uh, Harry has vision, sad, 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 Gregorovich wand death for German lady and probably her children. And then um, Mafalda Hopkirk and some other people get attacked because they are now dressing up. They're into the ministry. There's a big statue. It's scary and it's raining in Yaxley's office and Ron is freaking out. Um, 30 seconds on your clock, Vanessa. Let's fill in the details. Are you ready? Count me in. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. So the trio is eating and Ron loves it. And Harry's scar hurts. And Hermione's like, we know your scar hurts. You have to use Occlumency. And Harry's like, you use Occlumency, Hermione. And then they go to the ministry and they stun all these people. And they go in and they're looking for Umbridge. And Ron has to help this... um, this guy whose wife is being tried because he has to make it stop raining in Yaxley's office. And then um, they are like going around the ministry and they see Ron's dad. And then they finally see Dolores Umbridge at the last possible second. That was a scary moment, but also a good moment because they're looking for her. Right. And then they punched her in the face. (laughs) And just stole the locket and ran away. That's it, guys. (laughs) The muggle school of mugging. (laughs) okay so casper a place that i think might be helpful to start with this idea of truth because of the story that we talked about is how truths can be multiple and so what happens in the chapter is that harry has like filched a daily profit from you know someone who works for the ministry and brings it home and they're reading through and they're like oh snape is the head of school now And they're just talking about the teachers, right, and how the teachers aren't going to want to stay. And Harry says two things. He says, one, they probably don't have a choice. They would probably be arrested if they're lucky. Then he says, and they would want to stay to protect the students. And those are two completely antithetical ideas. One is that they would be forced to stay there. And the other is that they would want to stay there. And I think that that is one of the The really remarkable and beautiful things about being human is that both of those things can be true at once. And I was also just thinking about it in terms of myself. And when two things are true at once about me and one of them is like really beautiful, like I want to protect the students and the other is really negative, like, well, I don't want to be arrested. I will always choose to tell myself more prominently the negative version of the story And so even though both things are true, I think that we are so attached to a single narrative about ourselves that we'll just be like, yeah, but really I'm here because I'd be killed if I left. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely, I absolutely see that kind of cocktail of truths, right? The way in which we make certain decisions. And sometimes we don't even realize what the second or the third layer of truth that maybe is driving a decision, or we only recognize it kind of with 2020 vision in hindsight, or someone else points it out to us and we're like, oh, oh yeah, that is true. That's often my experience. So I'm like, oh, that's a good point. But what I think is most interesting within that idea is that exactly what you pointed to is that sometimes they can be conflicting, right? In this case, it's both a sense that the Hogwarts teachers have to stay, but also that they want to stay. And the question for me is, are we creating the second truth because the first truth is happening or are they actually true at the same time, right? Because it's very difficult, I think, for us to consistently do something that we know is bad. Nearly always, there's a story that we're telling ourselves of like, I know that I'm cheating on my partner, but I'm cheating on them because I actually want to stay with them. And if I have this like little romance on the side, it actually helps me stay with this person in the long term or, or I'm doing it for the kids or I'm, I'm making up situations here. But I can see how each of us can sometimes kind of fabricate a truth that might be created in response to the actual truth. Well, I think what's different about the teacher's And the situation that you painted is because the teachers are forced to be there, they're finding a silver lining, which is different Mm. than justifying, right? Like whenever I'm forced and I like know that I'm going to have to wait for a really long time in a waiting room in line or whatever, I go, oh, great. It's going to be reading time. I get to listen to a book. I get to read a novel. And like it's the middle of a Tuesday and I get to read a novel. I can start to find the silver lining. But that doesn't make it a justification. If I then started Mm. making appointments in the middle of the day just so I could have reading time, right? Like that would be a different thing. You mean kind of like making a podcast about a book that we enjoy so that we can talk (laughs) about it all the time and it becomes our job? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I more think that the lesson to take away is it's important to try to tell ourselves the positive stories, right? And we, but we, but I I take your point that we have to make sure that we're not justifying bad actions. And and it comes in both ways, right? Sometimes it's you have to figure it out what it is in yourself. We also see the trio trying to figure it out what's happening in the world. Especially I was thinking about media literacy, the way that they are reading the newspaper that Harry gets. They know it's now controlled of course by the ministry, but the ministry is controlled by Voldemort. So they're looking for truth that's hidden within kind of non-truths or half-truths to try and understand what what's happening. And I I'm suddenly seeing the parallel between having to figure that out in ourselves and having to figure that out in the world because what we're presented with is not always the, the full story. And I think Harry is so good at living that in terms of he didn't like a lot of what was reported about Dumbledore, but he was like, maybe it's true and maybe it's not. And I'm going to wait. But then other things he knows like this is not true. It's not that the ministry suddenly is behaving in weird ways. It's that Voldemort is in charge of the ministry. And so he is so good at not letting a personal bias be the thing that filters truth from untruth. 
A hundred percent, especially when it comes to his experience with the wands. Like he knows that his wands reaction to Voldemort had nothing to do with him. Like Hermione saying, oh, you have this power. She even says to him, this line was so striking to me. Why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power? Hermione is like full up in her feminism. She's like, you've got to own it, like claim it, live your power. I love it. It's amazing. But it's incorrect in this moment because it actually has nothing to do with Harry. <laughs> I also- also saw her like giving her TED talk, right? Absolutely. Lean in, Harry. <laughs> But what was so striking to me is that Harry, because he's had the experience of other people, you know, not just assuming about his life or reading the newspaper, right, in, in book five, but the people closest to him think that his experience is one thing and he knows that the truth is something else, but it's still not believed. So I think this question of truth is for Harry something really central. And it's one of the reasons why even in this chapter, when when he's found such depth and intimacy and connection, he's still on his own in his own experience. That's also, I mean, like the other big place that we see that is when he runs into the bathroom because his scar is hurting. Absolutely. Like that is a thing that he can only deal with alone. But, you know, when Hermione comes in and says, you know, you're supposed to use occlumency, whatever, Harry gives what I think is a really compelling series of arguments. And again, it's multiple arguments, right? But one of them that strikes me is that he's saying, I want to know. And that is rung in my ears like I want to bear witness Mm. like people Mm -hmm. are dying and the truth isn't going to come out about them right like Bertha Jorkin's truth never came out Amelia Bones's truth never came out like people are just dying in obscurity and nobody is finding out that Voldemort is actually the one who's murdering them and so the least I can do is see it and know what actually happened so one person knows as like a devout atheist as I am I am so moved by that, that it just matters that another human being witnesses it. And even if that person doesn't tell anybody and it stops there, it feels like by us watching each other, that the eyes of God are watching each other, right? That it it gets put into the universe and we are seen. And I, I love that even though this German woman and her children don't know that someone is watching, That's that literally someone is is watching and caring and grieving. I had never thought about that scene in that way. I've always seen it as this like, oh, he's trying to strategically understand it. Of course, that's part of the truth. But that idea that he's also there just to witness what otherwise would be completely invisible in the same way that his parents were killed, right? Like that was an unseen moment. That's so beautiful. But Harry was there to witness his parents' death, too. He can't remember it. But, like, this has sort of been his whole life, right? And he even says it. It was just like Cedric. He has been witnessing death, right, like his whole life. I'm also really reminded of, you know, within different religious traditions, you have different emphases. And one of the most beautiful around this idea of witness, I think, is the Quaker tradition. Very often causes that seem lost or or justice issues that other people have moved on from, Quakers are really committed to. And I'm thinking especially of the kind of campaigns against nuclear weapons in, in the UK, where you have Quakers who talk about kind of peace and witness as part of their work. And they go to these places when nuclear weapons are installed in submarines and all sorts of things like that. And they don't even try necessarily to interrupt it, but they stand there at the gateway of the entrance to the technical site. 
saying this is wrong. And even if we're not going to change it, it's important that someone witnesses and says, this isn't what the world should be. And I find that kind of it's nearly a sense of like a lost cause, but it isn't because often over the arc of history, you end up seeing things change. And then to know, you you can look back hundreds of years and say, we can't just say that it was right because it was the time. There were people at that time saying it was wrong. There's something so powerful, I think, about that act of witness, even when it seems impossible to change in the moment. The Quaker chaplain who you and I served on the board of chaplains with at Harvard, he did not let a single chaplaincy meeting go by without talking about the way that we treated Vietnam vets. And it's because in Harvard Square, there were a lot of Vietnam veterans who were homeless in Harvard Square. And I was just like, I love this man. He has been talking about the Mm. indecencies and the horror of the Vietnam War for, you know, decades. I mean, like 50 years, 50 years at this point. Right. And he just won't stop. He's like, it is still a scourge on this country. There are men out there freezing. I freaking love him. (laughs) A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, so Casper, I think we should go to the ministry. Yes. So Ron, you know, gets the hairs and takes over the body of this guy, Reg, and he... Reg is complaining to Hermione as Polyjuiced Hermione, saying, oh, I'm not having a good day. And Hermione answers, oh, I'm sorry you're not feeling well. And those sorts of miscommunications strike me as so realistic, where someone is trying to tell you a truth about themselves, like, I'm having a bad day because my wife is on trial. 
And actually, if you just looked at me, you would see that I'm not in my ministry uniform. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're sick. And it's like, that's super not what I said. (laughs) And this is obviously complicated by the fact that it's like not really the person who he thinks it is. Right. And like Hermione is obviously very nervous and like isn't trying to understand this person and like have a heart to heart in this moment. (laughs) But I think that that's often true, right? Like you're busy cooking and cleaning and someone in your family comes in and tries to tell you something and you're like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And you just like keep going about your day. And so even when we think we have these great excuses for distractions of like, I am busy trying to steal the Horcrux and defeat Voldemort, even when we think, I have every reason to be distracted and self-absorbed right now. Trying to hear other people's truths is still a noble effort and one that we will be rewarded for, right? Like, I think Hermione would have been better off. That's a good question. Because, I mean, we could tell the characters, you know, just come back tomorrow and do it again with a different you know, group of people find a different set of targets, as it were, or just wait another five minutes. There'll be another worker coming around shortly. And at the same time, People are going to keep being pulled in to fake trials like Reg's wife as long as Voldemort is in power. And so I feel really conflicted. We're never going to wait for a perfect time. I guess that's the truth that I'm trying to point to is that like every day something could go wrong or someone could be pulled away from the plan. And so I have to say I don't disagree that they went ahead with this plan today. I'm not like judging them. They are in crisis mode, right? But... I wish she had just been like, oh, why? And like actually listening to the truth and then making an informed decision, even if it's not the right decision, even if it's just like a split second decision and then you have to deal with it. I still think that knowing the truth, having all of the information is like a key part of any battle strategy. I really like that. Once we're inside the ministry, there's something that really struck me, which I think is important to look at, which is so often when we think about, you know, the rise of fascism, for example, or the takeover of an institution, you know, by by a right wing ideology, it's very easy to paint a picture in which like suddenly everyone has become like hardened fascists. And I think there's two incidents that we see inside the ministry that paints a different picture. One is really overt, which is that there's a wizard in the elevator who's talking about getting Dirk Cresswell's job. And so much of what is happening in the kind of throwing out of some people who work in the ministry who are affiliated with Dumbledore and, you know, new job openings, so much about what is happening internally at the ministry is about personal advancement and people making the most of this sudden change in regime to get a better job, to get a better salary. I mean, there are stories all through history, for example, in, you know, the Second World War context where people were reporting Jews that they knew because they wanted their house, right? Or they wanted some of their wealth or they they had an opportunity to take something that they wanted. And so they used the systems out there that had been created to get something personal. And even in Yaxley's robes, like there's all of this gold thread, right? This is about wealth and power as much as this kind of ideology that is now seeping into the ministry. And one encourages the other in some sort of twisted, sick way. Yeah. You loved that quote in Game of Thrones. What is it? Chaos is a ladder. Oh, so good. Yes. Yes. That's what's happening. Absolutely. But let's go to the place maybe that's that's the epitome of this entire chapter, which is the statue. Boo! Boo, hiss. The, the, the statue that used to be in the kind of atrium of the ministry has been replaced. 
by, I mean, it's not subtle. It's these wizards who are standing on the naked, crumpled bodies of muggles. That's what's on the statue. And it's really imposing this ideology of wizard supremacy that, you know, muggles are there either in the way or that they are there to be, you know, enslaved or or manipulated in some way. Yeah, it's an interesting piece of propaganda, right? Because every ministry official has to walk past it in order to get to their offices. So it's sort of like reminding people of the mission statement as you walk in, Mm -hmm. right? And then it also, by making the muggle so ugly, it helps people justify that, right? Like, ugh, and they're just like so stupid looking and they like look like they need to be subjugated. So it's simultaneously like giving a mission and a justification. And even though people probably know it's not true, right? Like people probably really do have muggle neighbors and like are in community with muggles. These things can brainwash us over time. Absolutely. And what I found so helpful about seeing this statue be created in this moment is that it's a helpful reminder that statues are not, you know, set up in a moment of history. They are there to shape our understanding of history. This is such a relevant point, I think, in in the United States right now, where there's so many conversations about Confederate statues. Statues are political statements, right? If you want to learn history, there's books, there's museums, there's education. But statues that occupy public place, especially at the center of power in the way that this statue does, it's a statement of what we want to create or how we want to shape the story of who we are. I think an uninformed way of thinking about this would be like, oh, but this is just someone's truth, right? Like, this is how they think about it. And it's like, no, once you add in power, you're imposing a story onto everyone else. And so there is no space for actual truth in this new police state uh, of the wizarding world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about speaking truth to power, but often power can actually... It's almost like rock, paper, scissors. Mm. It's like sometimes truth can beat power, but other times power can beat truth. Yeah. Or at least shape how we think it is. Yeah. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice. What are we doing this week? We are returning to the sacred practice of Chavruta. So I have a question for you, which is, why does this chapter start from a muggle perspective? We happen to know that there are 199 chapters in the Harry Potter books, and there are very few, I would guess around 10 chapters that are not from this like Harry slash omniscient narration perspective. But this chapter starts in this very you know, sort of like strange voice for the books. The muggles who lived in Grimald Place had long since accepted the amusing mistake in the numbering, right? Like this is clearly not from Harry's perspective. Harry has not interviewed right. the neighbors and been like, what do you <laughs> think about the fact that there's, you know, weird numbering, right? Like there's some sort of omniscient muggle perspective happening. My question is why in this moment? And the answer that I have for you is that we're about to see muggles as the enemy, right? We're about to go into the ministry Mm. where muggles are being subjugated and muggles are being brought in for questioning, muggle-borns, right? Like not even muggles. And so this is like a reminder, sort of just so you remember, like muggles are people too, before we go in and start talking about really oppressing them. But I'm wondering what you make of it. I love it. I think it's so cool to connect those two things together. 
and it, you're right, we hardly ever see things really from a Muggle perspective. Honestly, when I was reading the chapter, I was thinking it was somehow from like, maybe like a Death Eater's perspective of muggles, right? Like you have this rotation of Death Eaters who are standing outside the door, but we know it's different ones a lot of the time. So I was wondering like, oh, this is what they assume the muggles must think. Because part of me is like, there's probably someone who maybe also has a hobby like train spotting, who is really passionate about figuring out where the missing number 12 is and has like gone into the historical records and has written to the local council and is, you know, like I, I can imagine that the idea that they don't care, right, that the muggles aren't interested in this might be a, especially a, a Death Eater perspective of how muggles would think. It assumes they are stupid or it assumes that they're not interested in the world when actually, you know, a, a lot of muggles are very intelligent and interested in the world. But I love this idea that actually we're seeing a muggle perspective because we want to be reminded of their value and humanity and inherent dignity and worthiness. So I am really I am really persuaded by that. I mean, I'm a little bit persuaded by your point of view, though, because then we sort of hear, <laughs> oh, you know, the Londoners thought it was strange that these like weirdly dressed people were there and wondering if they weren't hot in their robes. And I can even imagine that being a Death Eater perspective, right? Of like Londoners are used to weird dressing people, but they probably think we're even weirder. (laughs) And they don't know that actually robes keep you extra cool and they prevent sunburn. But I'm trying to suss out It's still the question of like, why aren't we just in Harry's perspective? Like why this moment in the text changed the narrative voice? That's interesting. The other parallel, of course, is that the day that we're entering this chapter is the day that the Hogwarts Express is leaving King's Cross. And so in some ways, it's the first time that we're not entering the magical world, even though, of course, Harry and Ron did it by car one time. They were still following the train. And so maybe there's an an extra parallel being drawn about we're not entering the Wizarding World. And yet, at the same time, the Wizarding World is right here in the midst of Muggles. Just think about Platform 9 and 3 quarters, right, which is the same kind of spatial oddity, which no one else can see, but muggles are walking past every time. The same thing is happening here with number 12, Grimmauld Place. And honestly, if we think back to the platform, the idea of like hundreds of children running into a brick wall on one day, that that somehow would not be noticed is beyond reasonable to me. I think the way in which that kind of pretense is maintained is that there's a lot of memory wiping that happens in the following days. Like, I think this idea that like the wizarding world goes unnoticed is fallacy. And and so it points to maybe the the fact that these two worlds are much more overlapping and involved with one another than we would assume. I love that. And then maybe I just wonder if it is actually Harry's point of view that we're still in and it just sort of sounds different. There's a sentence in the still like beginning point of view of the watchers seem to be gleaning little satisfaction from their vigil. And I just wonder what Harry would mean or what muggles would mean by vigil, right? Like vigil is something that is held in memory or in honor after someone has died. And so I wonder what that word would mean in both contexts. It's funny connecting that word vigil to the experience that Harry and the trio have every time they enter the house, Grimmauld Place, because this kind of like dusty ghost of Dumbledore still washes over them every time. And so even though it maybe isn't conceived as a vigil, there is this idea of like still being present with the loss of Dumbledore at least once a day. And so maybe it's his shadow that is still 
present in the lives of the trio, or at least his ghost, you know, totally. I, 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 f- I feel him in this chapter. Absolutely. And then, you know, to go back to our theme, it's always a truth that sends him away, right? Like, I'm not the one who killed you. <gasps> oh, I love that. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's voicemail is from Anonymous. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I just finished the episode for Book 6, Chapter 26. The reason I'm so behind is that I'm a resident physician in New York City and have spent the past few months caring for hundreds of patients with COVID-19. In this episode, I was struck by the florilegia. Vanessa chose the phrase, your blood is worth more than mine. At the height of the pandemic, my greatest fear was triaging resources, including medications and ventilators among patients. The blood of younger, healthier patients, in a way, was viewed as more valuable than the elderly. They had more years left, and like Dumbledore, many of our elderly patients have terminal illnesses and only months left to live, even if they were not to have contracted the virus. But putting value on different types of blood goes a layer deeper. Even though no race or ethnicity is more valuable than others, this virus has disproportionately affected people of color. This speaks to the deep-seated racism of our healthcare system. Casper's phrase, I am not worried, I am with you, pains me. Many of our patients and families put full faith in us as a source of comfort that they would get through this. But with a virus so new, limited resources, and not enough data, we did not have the answers or cures 
when you failed to fulfill the trust and reliance people had in us as medical providers and that the hospital has as a place of comfort and healing. I could see it in their eyes as I held up my phone so that loved ones could FaceTime each other and say goodbye. So I would like to offer a blessing to every patient we lost and to their friends and family. Thank you. Gosh, I, I'm honestly, I feel like I can't even imagine being amidst the, the stress and sadness and frustration and I mean, just the everything that you were describing and also the way in which all of us, when we're in a system trying to do good and can at the same time see the deep racist policies impacts that that system is having, you know, whether it's education, whether it's, I mean, just about everything. Um, so I really appreciate you pointing us to that and for all of us to to do something about it, you know. I mean, COVID has killed, I think the number is something like twice as many black people proportionally as white people. It, it doesn't get more obvious than that about who and what we value as a country. Just thank you so much for your work. And I'm so sorry this is not the position that you thought you were walking into when you became a doctor. So thank you for rising to the occasion in this way. Casper, who do you want to bless this week? I'm going to bless Ron. I still sometimes question, like, why is Ron here? Like, apart from being a great friend, and that is particularly valuable. But in this chapter, we see just his knowledge of the wizarding world is a key to unlock so many questions that Hermione and Harry have to navigate. In particular, that wearing a navy robe means that you're part of the team of maintenance workers at the ministry. And that kind of insight Although it may not take enormous skill, although it may not take study, Ron has it and the other two don't, and it matters. And so, you know, sometimes you're the person in the room and you're like, I'm not particularly smart, but I know where the nearest grocery store is. And like, that can really matter. And I just hope I value Ron's knowledge and practical insights throughout this, I was going to say adventure, but this like horror story, really, that the trio have to endure for the next few chapters. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Mafalda Hopkirk. She wakes up in an alley not knowing what happened to her and not remembering the last several hours. And I think that that is something that a good portion of our population has had to deal with. So I just want to offer a blessing for her. This is so scary. She is a victim of this war. I would imagine that this is like quite a traumatizing experience and she's considered quite disposable by the trio. And so I don't know, I sort of wish the trio like pinned a note onto her being like, so sorry, we had to do this. Nothing bad happened to you. But anyway, I would just like to offer a blessing to anyone who's had a similar experience where they feel as though they don't know what happened to them at some point. It's really horrifying. Oh, I'd never really thought about that. Oh, my father. I hope you're okay. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or you can come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We just switched up our perks and some of them are awesome. Others are just okay. (laughs) You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can send us a voicemail. And next week, we are hosting an immersive online summer camp. Join us. Go to HarryPotterSacredText.com and click on the camp icon to join us. Next week, 
week, because we're running camp all week long, we are going to rerun an old episode, but it's one of our very favorites, where we do sacred imagination with the troll attack in Halloween in the very first book. And it's one of the reasons why Vanessa fell absolutely in love with that particular spiritual practice. So look out for that one. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nedelman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. We're distributed by Acast. Thanks so much to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll be with you all very soon again. I feel like I'm doing a radio show in the morning. It's drive time with Casper. And tonight on the show, like, you know what I mean? Because you're so perky. The caffeine from the tea just hit his system. And you're with us on I-9 where there is a traffic buildup. It's backed all the way to NorCal and we're going to kick it to the Marie and the chopper. Hello. Uh, (laughs) We should do a whole like new like evening news thing. Oh, so funny.